Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined digitally by Pastor Scott Richards. Always a pleasure to have you. What was that? Always a pleasure to have you. Oh, always great to be here. (laughs) A little bit of a technical glitch right off the bat, but we're going to uh, soldier madly on. Yeah, it's great to be able to uh, be a part of the program remotely here, so uh, we're looking forward to what the Lord's going to do. Yeah, and considering what he will do, what we usually present ourselves available to do is to answer your Bible questions. So if you'd like to send them to us, feel free to join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. If you click on the Watch Live tab, you'll be sent to where we are live streaming every single weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time and Pacific before Daylight Savings kicks in. As well, if you want to join us on YouTube, it's a reason for hope. And Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you want to like or subscribe to us there, you'll be notified when we are going live. However, just to remain ahead of the newly founded uh, disinformation uh, Gestapo regime and so forth, we uh, understand that we aren't in control of when we may or why we will be taken down. If that happens, though, we will still be available on our website, and if any of that changes, or if it's just a technical glitch on our part, feel free to still join us there. Uh, Continue to keep us in prayer that we remain faithful in spite of the opposition, but noting all of those points, remember that it is only required that you have a question, that it is sincere, and it is about the Bible. If you meet all of those criteria, we'll be happy to answer your question on the broadcast. But with that being said, and opening, of course, your questions to be sent to us as well by email, questionsforhope at gmail.com. We'll be available for the next hour, both on and off air, to receive your questions, and we'll answer them at our soonest opportunity. However, we don't want to do something unless the Lord equips us, so why don't we start off with a word of prayer. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to not only be in your word, but also in your grace. We know that unless you are good to us, we have nothing good to offer. So please just give my father and I the filling of your heart to be able to share it, the kind of gentleness as well as the desire for truth that will allow people to recognize and respond properly to your voice. We know that we're sinners, but that you are a Savior, and on that basis for what you've done and completed on the cross, we stand before you now and are grateful for this privilege and honor. We don't take it for granted, but we ask that you would keep us faithful in it as long as we can. Thank you for the opportunity to do these things, and I ask that those listening would be given ears to hear, that those speaking would be given mouths to speak, and that you would be given the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so starting us off, we'll be keeping an eye out for your questions as they come in, but uh, until that venture is completed, we want to start off with the question that I think might Uh, lead us down a few significant rabbit trails. We can see how far this will go. But uh, the question's from Ian, who wants to know, in Psalm 22, obviously 
Messianic psalm Jesus directly quoted while he was on the cross. But uh, apart from verse 1, he's more interested in verse 21, where he quotes the line, you have answered me. And he wonders how that was fulfilled. How did the Father answer him while on the cross? Obviously, there were incidents before he was put on the cross where he said, Father, glorify your name. And a voice from heaven said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. But the question that people have is, oh, where was the voice of the Father on the cross? Was that a failed prophecy? Or, if we don't want to go too far with too little, how was this prophecy fulfilled? And with an extension point on that, who was it that actually raised Jesus from the dead? Because there are, wink, wink, uh, three people, or persons, I should rather say, given the credit. So let's start with Psalm 22 and verse 21. The question and concern is part of the verse. We obviously want to make sure that we read the whole chapter in its proper context, but the good news is, and for the sake of time, we can just note the entirety of the verse that's being quoted. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. This is in reference to those who have surrounded him, going as far back as verse 16. Then in verse 22 it says, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. And then goes on to note that the Lord's praise will continue forever. So... In this observation, obviously, if you're not familiar with Psalm 22, to those listening, it's a literal play-by-play description of a Roman crucifixion about four to five hundred years before the Assyrians even invented it as a method of execution, let alone before the Roman Empire existed. That's the first I guess, notch in the belt. But the second interesting detail is after being given this description of the crucifixion, it begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it concludes with this song of praise where it's noting, I guess concludes with the song, it is a song of praise, but that God has heard that question. Why have you forsaken me? The answer is, of course, that he hasn't. But when we look at what happened to Jesus on the cross, it's very important to understand it was more than just a brutal form of execution. There was a spiritual component as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And, uh, you know, the question comes up, uh, obviously, uh, who was it who raised Jesus from the dead? Uh, Well, the simple answer, I think, to that question is in Acts chapter 2 and verse 24, where we are told God raised Jesus from the dead. That's the basic answer, I think, that uh, God was the one who resurrected Jesus. But interestingly, uh, the Bible goes on to say that uh, all three members of the triunity of God got involved in the resurrection. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1 says that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. There we read Paul, an apostle, uh, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, we are told, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. Uh, we are also told that, in, uh, in, that uh, Jesus himself, in John chapter 2 and verse 19, 
uh, speaking of his body, said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise him up. Also in John chapter 10 and verse 18, Jesus' famous statement there, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, but I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. Uh, this charge I received from my Father. Now, uh, some people uh, have uh, a problem with the idea of Jesus raising himself from the dead in that they say, well, wasn't he, in fact, dead? But the fact of the matter is, Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. Physically, as a man, he could die. But as 100% God, he has an eternal existence. And so not even uh, wicked men killing his body uh, could change his eternal nature or diminish in any way his divine power. Uh, and, and so no one in the history of the world has ever had the authority to lay down his life and raise it up again. Only the God-man, Jesus Christ, could have both of those abilities. So uh, when the question comes up, uh, who raised Jesus from the dead? We could say God did. And since the Bible insists that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we shouldn't be surprised at all uh, that the same triunity who uh, all got involved in the creation all were involved in salvation, are now uh, responsible for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. All right. So then with that framework put in place, that the credit to the resurrection goes to God, and we don't believe God is a Unitarian being, one being one person, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all have that prerogative, who was it that answered the Son because we don't believe the Father was crucified, we don't believe the Spirit was crucified, no. who answered the Son, and then how? Well, as we read in the psalm, it began with the observation, why have you forsaken me? And the answer, looking back in the past tense, again, let me read verse 22 again, I will, future tense, declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. In verse 24, it says, he has not despised, referencing the past, despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. So it's a refutation of the question the chapter began with. But when he cried to him, he heard and then noted the point in saying that his praise will continue. Now, obviously, if we believe the Bill Nye nihilism, the dead-you're-done logic, it would be impossible for God the Son to continue to honor God the Father if he ceased to exist at his death. But the Christian worldview doesn't believe death is the cessation of existence. It's a separation of your body and your consciousness. When Jesus physically died, he didn't stop existing. He returned to the Father. We see him make that point in John chapter 19, where his last words, after Tetelestai were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This was what he was acting out in that observation he made earlier in the book when he said, I have the power to give it up and to take it up again. Well, how and when did he take it up again? Just like he said, three days later, that was how the Father answered him. Now you note, but Jesus rose himself from the dead. The Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Why wouldn't he praise the Spirit? Well, you see the point and why we gave that initial preface. The Trinity 
accomplished the resurrection. The Trinity accomplished our salvation. The Trinity is the reason why, and the one being made in focus when it says, I will give thanks and praise to the Lord. So when we're talking about the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the Tetragrammaton, the covenant name of God, we're talking about the whole triunity. But if on the other hand we were to say, no, Jesus is separate, well, now I see why you're confused, because you misunderstood what the Bible means by God. That would be how we'd answer that question. How did he answer him? With a resurrection, by allowing him to continue to praise him in the restored body. By what power? By the power of God. But Jesus was God, exactly. (laughs) They all had that role. So let us know if that helps you out, Ian, and thank you for the good start to the broadcast. And note, I recognize that's a complicated issue. If you want further clarification, feel free to ask anyone listening. Uh, Here's a question from Mike Hill, who wants to know, Uh, what would be our view on letting your children watch Harry Potter and similar movies? Is it wrong? Thanks. Well, my personal opinion, it might be boring, but if you (laughs) want to watch it, I guess that's one way to spend your life. If we get caught up in the stigma, however, of, well, those movies are satanic, what makes something satanic? Is it the wizards and wizardry? Because if that's the case, Chronicles of Narnia is in trouble, but that was written by a Christian with a very Christian message in mind. If it's the fact that it was written by a non-Christian, then the Bible's in trouble because Paul quotes twice non-Christian sources in order to make biblical points. In fact, believe it or not, J.K. Rowling, though a poor example of one, is herself a nominal kind of cultural Christian, and she is stated on record that anyone who has read the Gospels would know the ending to her book, and that is in reference to the Harry Potter series. Obviously, there are different people who are going to respond to entertainment and media in different ways, and parents are going to be the first line of defense in what's going to be edifying for their children. Dad, you can speak from experience. There was a time where you were my filter as opposed to me being my own filter. I might benefit from that system being restored, but that's another topic. When we're asked the question, should I let my children watch this, or is this satanic, what would be the biblical balance? Because it's obviously not a yes or no question. Yeah, I I think there's a number of scriptures we can use to come to some conclusions about that. As far as the content of Harry Potter itself is concerned, and the the distinction between, say, C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia, uh, one of the things that uh, I think you see in Harry Potter is obviously it's full of stereotypical magic and so on. There's a distinction between people who have these magical powers and uh, individuals who don't. They're called muggles who are kind of looked down upon or seen as uh, kind of a source of problem in the Harry Potter worldview. Uh, you know, probably the, the biggest uh, problem that I would have with the, the Harry Potter books just from a Christian point of view, is God is absolutely absent in the world of Harry Potter. Uh, there, there is no um, uh, appeal to a God who's in control over these things. Good and evil, uh, right and wrong, are always kind of balance, or, or battling with each other. But uh, really, uh, there's no uh, uh, appeal at all. Uh, to a God who created all of these things or a God to whom everyone is going to have an account. Now, those of you who are really into Harry Potter uh, can uh, fill me in if I'm mistaken on all this. I'm not a big Harry Potter fan. Uh, But uh, the other thing I would say to the positive on Harry Potter 
is that uh, love is always portrayed in these books through selflessness and self-sacrifice. Uh, Harry Potter's own mom died to save him. There's a sense of justice uh, with good triumphing over evil. Harry faces his fears and finds courage, even risking his own life for the greater good. Uh, you know, friendships are defined by loyalty and uh, devotion even to the point of death. Uh, I, I think those are probably uh, very good uh, morals and uh, values to emphasize. But here's where it comes down. When you're talking about any form of entertainment, Harry Potter, Star Wars, you name it, uh, what's going on. I mean, the Star Wars universe uh, has the uh, impersonal force, which is both good and evil, very Hinduistic uh, point of view, uh, as far as its, uh, its universal view of, of right and wrong and so forth. Uh, you know, if you're going to be involved with watching any of this, you know, a, a few things. First of all, never go against your conscience on something like this. If, if your conscience is affected by watching these things, by all means, do not watch them. Uh, Romans chapter 14 talks about how uh, when an individual goes uh, against their conscience, it's a very dangerous thing. Uh, in uh, Paul's uh, epistles to Timothy, he talks about that some have suffered uh, shipwreck in their faith, going against uh, love and a good conscience. And, and so if there's something about uh, any form of entertainment that hits you as, as uh, you know, the, the Lord tapping on the shoulder going, no, it's just not for you, then don't go against that just because other people might feel they have some freedom along those lines. You know, as far as letting your children watch these sort of things, if you decide not to let them watch these sort of things, don't just say it's of the devil and shut it off be prepared to have a conversation as to why you feel like this is not something that uh, they should uh, be a part of. But be careful in that as well, in that uh, you kind of elevate these things almost to the, uh, the the notion of forbidden fruit at that particular time. You know, if you are going to watch these things, or maybe you've got uh, you know tweens and young teens that are starting to watch uh, you know, again, some of the uh, the werewolf romance kind of uh, uh, stuff that's out there a a as well. Uh, you know, be prepared to have a conversation about these sort of things from a biblical uh, point of view, uh, even if it's pointing out the fact that uh, God is strangely absent in these sort of things. You can use that as a launch point to be able to talk about the fact that the Lord is deeply involved with us and deeply involved in his creation, that we, you know, for instance, to use the Star Wars analogy, don't uh, serve a God who's an impersonal force that can be manipulated for good or for evil, that there is a God who defines what good and evil is all about, and that is a far more hopeful message than anything that you'll tend to find in Star Wars, which really ends up in the final analysis being a uh, kind of a tribute to might making right. Uh, you know, the other side of it is this, you know, if uh, someone is into these Harry Potter books, then emphasize the things in them that are uh, biblically uh, aligned. Uh, you know, point out the fact that we do tend to resonate in our hearts and our lives with the idea of self-sacrifice. And why would we uh, seemingly have something that, that automatically identifies with that being good? We can talk about the fact that God has placed these things within our hearts. Uh, again, he's placed eternity in the hearts of man, according to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. The Apostle Paul was able to go to uh, even as uh, paganistic a uh, worldview setting 
as Mars Hill, where the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers were holding sway, and use even that setting as a launch point to be able to tell them that uh, even though they might be groping in the dark for God, God, in fact, has reached out to them and has given evidence uh, of his reality and who he is by sending his son, Jesus, to walk among us, die on a cruel Roman cross and rise from the dead in a moment of history. So I think if we have that kind of Mars Hill attitude, especially in our increasingly secularistic culture, uh, we can really use these things as great opportunities to be able to segue and bring them back to uh, the reality uh, of Jesus. You know, different people will have different takes as far as watching these kind of entertainments go. Some people just say, well, it's you know harmless fantasy and uh, obviously there's not a reality behind it. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that, but if you are going to allow your children to watch it, make sure you shepherd their little hearts. Uh, make sure that you point out to them uh, the things in it that are positive, the things that are not, uh, that we have a greater power uh, as uh, believers in Christ available to us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Uh, we have a, a greater battle against good and evil where it's not just might making right and uh, gee, who knows how it's gonna turn out in the end. Uh, there's a reason why self-sacrifice and loyalty are, are worthwhile values. And they're worthwhile values because uh, God who created us has established those things within our hearts. So, uh, you know, each individual has to, to make a call uh, about all of that, whether it's Harry Potter, whether it's Star Wars, or it's the Twilight Saga, or, or these things along that line. But I think if we can use these as a point of, of interaction with people, showing that uh, the, bi the biblical worldview really is more uh, satisfying and really more thrilling than any of these things could ever do. I, I loved your comment, Sean, that it's just kind of boring in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, I, I think we can uh, use that as a great opportunity to share the gospel in this culture. Yeah, and again, the older movies certainly had a bit more to offer, but the point still stands. Two passages that we want you to take away, not just our opinions or perspectives. If you want to identify something to satanic, it's not in the themes, it's not in the show, it's in the actual message. This is Second Timothy 2 and verse 8. This uh, is, of course, speaking of, let me go to verse 9, but 8 will set the context. And the lawless one who will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. So this ultimate antichrist, this ultimate fraud and counterfeit, which, by the way, isn't superior to Jesus. Jesus will show up and he'll be toast. But note this, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. What is that? With all power, signs, and lying wonders. Deception is what makes something satanic. Uh, we posted it on our Twitter page, but you would get more biblical truth from a horror film that makes the demons out to be the bad guy than the colorful and fanciful ways that children's TV shows even today try to present antichrist messages to children. When we're talking about these issues, the truth of the message is what we need to ultimately come to conclusions about as to whether or not it's satanic. And the same is true in the other stat. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 4, the context was speaking of things sacrificed to idols and why we don't have to be afraid of that, but note it's what you take into your body. Verse 4 notes the point. Every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified, literally cleansed and set aside for a new purpose, by the word of God and prayer. 
If the Bible is the focus and your fellowship with God is the result, good on you. But if, on the other hand, the substance of it requires you to filter through so much garbage and counterfeit information that, well, for all intents and purposes, you'd be better off spending it somewhere else, then do that. Be sensitive to conscience. But if, on the other hand, you'd say, no, there's something legitimately edifying in this. I know there's stuff I have to get around, but there's other stuff that's keeping me on the ground spiritually. That is where we need to ask ourselves questions. We're not going to tell you what you can and can't watch. If you come to us for a movie and show recommendations, unless it's something that God's done something in my heart about, and that's going to be rare, I can't answer for everything because I haven't seen everything, but I do give all of you enough credit, and I want to uh, encourage and edify all of you, that I'm sure you can speak for this as well, to practice discernment on your own time. We're not your parents. We're not going to put filters on your TVs to keep the bad messages out. We want you to be able to recognize the truth so that a counterfeit sticks out a mile away. And yeah. uh, I guess, especially nowadays, it's not going to be that difficult. Here's a question from Javier, who wants to know whether Jesus was married or not. Now, this is interesting. Even to some degree that Mary Magdalene was 100% undoubtedly his wife. From where and when did these claims arise? It would also would have made a difference in the faith as to whether he remained celibate or not. Thanks. Um, thanks, Javier. Yeah, I don't know. I know who popularized it. Uh, Dan Brown, the Da Vinci Code, is the most recent proponent to these things. And you can, I'm sure, find some writings and speculations from the Jesus Seminar before him and Wellhausen and Tubigan before that. Well, as Mormonism far... presents that. What's up? Uh, can you repeat that? What? Uh, regarding what presents that? Uh, Mormonism. Oh, yes, that would be another century before as well. Um, The ideas and speculations that Jesus was married, it's going to have as much a doctrinal bent as anything else. But the problem is, when we make that statement, 100% undoubtedly his wife, I'd love for it to be shown one place in Scripture where Jesus was married. As far as the impact of our faith as to whether or not he was celibate, again, it's not sinful to get married, but the information simply isn't there. If we're going to ask the question, well, what significance would it have been if Jesus had biological offspring? He didn't, so there's no sense in speculating. If we ask the question, okay, well, what if all of these things. Well, those things aren't in the information we actually have, so let's put it where it belongs, in uh, file number 13, the circular file, also known as the garbage. If, on the other hand, people are going to be insistent about this, how do you think we should respond? Well, I think, uh, you know, I think you can use it as a launch point. Uh, Obviously, uh, it it seems like this idea of Jesus being married uh, does come along uh, on a regular basis. It's a wind of doctrine that blows through the church. Uh, the last time was when a fourth century uh, papyrus uh, was discovered called the Jesus Wife Papyrus. Uh, and the Jesus Wife Papyrus, it says, Jesus said to them, my wife. And that's really all. It's just a fragment uh, there. Uh, and so, you know, the only thing that's interesting about this discovery uh, is it was found in Egypt. It was a Gnostic gospel. Uh, and a couple of Gnostic Gospels mentioned Jesus having a close relationship with Mary Magdalene, but none of them ever state that Jesus was married to her or to anybody else. It's important for us to understand that. 
uh, right off the bat. Uh, The Jesus wife, Papyrus, uh, obviously uh, antedates the time of Jesus by centuries. It wasn't an eyewitness account. It is loaded with other uh, uh, dead giveaways that an individual who wrote this was trying to promote the idea of Gnosticism, that uh, knowing God was only available to a select handful of individuals who had secret knowledge that wasn't available to the average person. There's a number of Gnostic Gospels, and some people will say, well, you know, some of these Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, oh, you know, they so humanized Jesus. But if you ever read uh, the Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, you discover that the opposite is, in fact, the case. Uh, For instance, the end of the Gospel of Thomas talks about uh, Peter objecting to the idea that Mary Magdalene uh, was following them. And uh, Jesus said, well, uh, because she wasn't a man. And uh, Jesus said, well, we will make her male uh, in order for uh, her to be a follower of me. You know, and so the uh, misogynistic aspects of all of this are, are pretty clear in a lot of these things. But as far as Jesus being married, we just don't really see it. You would think the Bible would have uh, explicitly told us that this is the case or made some unambiguous statement of the fact. Again, the Bible would not be silent on such an important issue. Uh, The Bible does talk quite a bit about Jesus' uh, family relationships, mentions Jesus' mother, his adoptive father, Joseph, his half-brothers and half-sisters. So why would it neglect to mention uh, the fact that Jesus had a wife? Uh, Sometimes people say, well, you know, I I believe he had a wife uh, because it makes him more human. But, you know, once again, you're, you're reading something into the scripture that just simply doesn't uh, exist in the scriptures. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people that don't want to believe that Jesus was God in human flesh. And so they invent and believe myths about Jesus being married or having children, uh, being an ordinary human being. A uh, big uh, closing scene in uh, the pot boiler movie, The Last Temptation of Christ by Martin Scorsese, uh, shows Jesus walking around with Mary and Martha uh, as his wives. And uh, again, the Apostle Paul preaching the resurrected Jesus and uh, Jesus stopping him and saying, why are you teaching people these lies about me? And Paul says, uh, well, these people are lost. They need hope. Uh, if I have to kill you, I'll kill you. If I have to resurrect you, I'll resurrect you. I'm glad I met you. Now I can forget you. So, uh, you know, when you see these kind of movie portrayals, you know, you can see uh, where the you know deception areas come into all of this. You know, a secondary question always comes up. Could Jesus have been married? Well, there's nothing simple, obviously, about being married. Uh, There's nothing simple about having sexual relations in marriage. So could Jesus have been married and been the sinless Lamb of God and the Savior of the world? Uh, No biblical reason why that couldn't have been the case. But there is nothing in Scripture that states that that is the case. And uh, those who believe Jesus was married uh, do not believe he was sinless or that he was the Messiah. They usually will try to uh, have things both ways. Uh, So uh, the the bottom line is this, getting married and having children wasn't the reason that Jesus came into the world. Why did Jesus come into the world? Mark chapter 10 and verse 45 tells us pretty clearly that even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So, uh, you know, Jesus wasn't here for the same reason that we are here. Uh, Not all of us are here, obviously, to get married and have children. Paul speaks of uh, that as a gift of God 
And the gift of singleness is a part of God's plan for some people uh, in this world. But as far as Jesus is concerned, Jesus, I believe, had the gift of singleness because he was here for one exclusive reason, to give his life as a ransom for many. So to uh, be married and to have children and so forth, uh, these things would have been apart from the primary mission that Jesus uh, accomplished when he was born here, when he grew here, when he lived a sinless life and laid that sinless life down on a cruel Roman cross and rose from the dead so that we could be saved. So, uh, you know, if you want to get involved with speculations about the life of Jesus, these things obviously are uh, all over the place all the time, but there is no biblical evidence whatsoever that Jesus was ever married. Yeah, so stick to what we know. <laughs> yeah, that's a good um, idea. Here's an interesting question from Mac. Now, this is going to lead a few directions. I'm going to try not to get sidetracked. You keep me on pace if I seem to be rambling. Uh, he wants to know if it's sinful to not be more expressive in his worship. He he kind of fulfills the Baptist personality, where he's just kind of, you know, thinking through the song lyrics and enjoying the atmosphere that music sets for the heart, but he isn't, you know, jumping up and down. He's not raising his hands. And he wants to know if that's sinful. Mac, I would say that given the examples we have in Scripture, obviously you would go to the book of Nehemiah where people encourage to have appropriate emotional states when they're worshiping God and reading his law. They were mourning, but he said, don't mourn. This is a day of rejoicing. He doesn't tell them to hold their hands up and start jumping, but he tells them to stop crying. So emotions should match up the purpose for which you're gathering. Uh, example of someone being condemned for being too expressive was sinful. In the book of Second Samuel chapter 6, uh, Saul's daughter Michal uh, was kind of embarrassed by David when he dressed up as the common person and was just as much ecstatic and singing and dancing when the ark was brought into Jerusalem as everyone else was. And she's like, ew, David, you're embarrassing me. And that uh, put a damper on their relationship. Now, again, this is the segue I want to avoid, but if you have questions about it, it's... I try to understand that Mikael was... Uh, she had been through a lot leading up to this point, so I try to have some empathy for her. But note, the sin on her part was condemning David for expressing joy in the presence of God. So if we were to say, you guys are being too sensational, you guys should be just stoic soldiers for Jesus and have as much uh, you know, joy in a graveyard when worship songs are being played. If you were to condemn someone for that, I'd say that's sinful because it's in direct conflict with what we see honored in Scripture. But if you were to say the reverse, if people say, you're not expressive enough, well, that's I think, absent from Scripture. When it comes to the attitude that we need to have towards worship, it's to first understand what worship is. The word just means to bow down, to recognize someone's authority. If we recognize the things that God has done, who he is, and the sort of things that worship music entails, then obviously that's going to affect people in different ways. Some people, you know, they go to their uh, favorite music concerts, and they're, you know, down there thrashing in the mosh pit, and the we're to see a mosh pit in a classical orchestra, that'd be hilarious now that I'm entertaining it in my head, but it wouldn't suit the purpose of the music. If 
on the other hand, someone were to gather around and reflect on the fact that we're sinners, but that God had to pay an ultimate price to redeem us, there's some people who express thankfulness in that way. They think it is something we're celebrating. But note as well, a lot of people celebrate in different ways. If we're asked, and again, this is just through a point I'll repeat because it's the only one I have to make, if we were to condemn someone for not being expressive enough, it would be just as sinful as condemning someone for being too expressive, which we do have directly condemned in Scripture. Anything you'd want to correct or add to that? Well, nothing to correct, but uh, boy, that is a a big issue because a lot of times uh, we confuse uh, our taste in certain things or our particular personal proclivities uh, with something that everybody needs to do. Does the Bible say we should be expressive in worship? Does it give examples where individuals are permitted to be expressive in worship? Absolutely. You know, the Apostle Paul said he wished that they wanted uh, men in all places to lift up holy hands to God. You read through the Psalms, there's all kinds of different expressions of worship that we see uh, uh, that are available to us and, and that we can certainly enjoy. But there are also uh, times, as King Solomon observed, there's a time to rejoice and there's a time to mourn. Uh, There are situations where we are certainly honoring God, not just by having, you know, a glory grin on your face that's so big you feel like uh, you can't contain it, but also uh, worshiping the Lord uh, with with tears and, and with mourning, as is appropriate in certain sets of circumstances. The bottom line, I think, uh, the, the best answer I, I've been able to get in all of this, because I've been in churches that are very, very uh, expressive, and I've been in churches that seem to also uh, be kind of anything goes. That comes back to a question about worship that Jesus was asked uh, when he was interacting with a Samaritan woman that he was talking to at a well. Uh, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. This is in John chapter 4. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Now notice here we see the externals of worship. In this case, the question is, where is the appropriate place to be able to worship? Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We uh, know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeing such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, the idea of worshiping in spirit and truth is really important. First of all, let's talk about truth. Our worship should be based upon how God himself has communicated to us that he wants us to be worshipped. I I talked to a uh, person who uh, left a church uh, not too long ago because uh, as part of their worship in a worship service, I don't know why they were doing this, but they were wrapping people up in saran wrap as a way of uh, expressing God's surrounding presence there. Well, I don't see wrapping people in saran wrap ever mentioned in the Word of God. Uh, so that doesn't really pass the truth test to me. The, uh, the famous uh, Toronto Blessing uh, revival, quasi-revival, so-called revival, where uh, people would uh, go to these services and begin to bark like dogs and cluck like chickens and 
and uh, you know, uh, they like donkeys and so forth, because they said, well, let everything at breath praise the Lord. Well, the scripture also says, let everything be done uh, decently and in order. And so nowhere in scripture do we ever see commanded or modeled that kind of worship. It was something that was just uh, emotions gone to seed. So we wanna make sure that we are worshiping in truth. However, we also wanna make sure that we're worshiping in spirit. And by worshiping in spirit, we can say, is our worship spiritual and real? Is it focused in on God? And, uh, you know, part of worship, according to Romans chapter 12, is we present ourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. Now, notice each and every one of us has the opportunity to be able to worship in spirit and in truth. God doesn't uh, stamp us out in a cookie cutter mold. In Ephesians chapter two and verse 10, we are told that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That word workmanship is, you know, uh, is the word poema. It means that we are uh, like his poem, like a work of art. And so each and every one of us brings something different to the table. Uh, there are those who will worship God in, in a very sincere, but very solemn and very respectful kind of a way. And there's churches that, that highlight that. Uh, more liturgical churches are, are uh, built around that. And, and people that have that kind of bent uh, certainly can find uh, a, a place where they can worship God in a very uh, undistracted way in those churches. There are churches uh, that are very expressive in terms of their worship to God. And uh, I'm glad those churches are around there. Now, we in Calvary Christian Fellowship, Calvary Chapel in general, uh, tend to hit in the middle of all of this. Uh, we believe in worshiping in spirit and in truth. Uh, you know, Baptists tend to think that we're Pentecostals, and Pentecostals tend to think we're Baptists. And so I, I really think that having that balance of doing things decently and in order, wanting to express our hearts to God, we put a lot of emphasis on uh, the, the idea of singing to the Lord and expressing our hearts to the Lord in our worship services, but we also put a great uh, emphasis on teaching in our services so that we can learn how God desires us to worship him. And uh, hopefully by giving us a chance to corporately worship the Lord and to be able to receive his word, uh, we can be that living sacrifice when we, we leave the church. So I think having that balance is really, really key. Are we worshiping in spirit and in truth? Not just because we're following the herd, not just because everybody's doing something at a particular time, but because it really does pass biblical muster. And uh, as well, are we worshiping sincerely? Are we not just kind of looking around at what other people are doing? Uh, are we focusing in on the Lord? That I think is, is the very important thing to keep in mind there. Yeah, as long as you aren't being a distraction or disruptive or right. using it to promote some sort of false doctrine, as long as the heart and the focus is on God, then he's honored by both the hyper and the halted. If we're going to, on the other hand, you know, just me personally, I'm a bigger guy, and if I were to do something expressive, I understand it would probably be either a distraction or maybe even blocking the view of people around me. So I tend to sit in the back and I try to keep a low profile. I also don't sing very loudly, not because it's disrespectful, but because I can't sing that well, and I don't want to be a distraction or a revulsion to those around me in this case. That is the reason. So understand, Mac, if you're more reserved, that's not sinful. We would look at examples like in Second Samuel where uh, 
the opposite end of this would be sinful. So I think the reverse would also be true as well. Yeah. Question yeah. from Holly wants to know, why do some Christians come to church and some don't? I guess you'd have to ask them, but uh, they have a friend who believes but wants to keep it personal. That's a problem. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23, it says, let us hold fast Excuse me. The uh, the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another. Notice this: in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another so much more as you see the day approaching. A good passage to read alongside this, I'll encourage you to read it on your own time, is 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, particularly chapter 14, because he notes in excruciating detail that we all have different spiritual gifts. And the purpose of those spiritual gifts is for the edification of everyone involved, the building up of the people. You can't uh, edify yourself, and you aren't given every spiritual gift. So to isolate yourself is not only foolish, Proverbs 18 and verse 1 says, but it's also negligence spiritually, because you got gifts, I got gifts, and we all have gifts meant to minister to one whole purpose. Paul uses in chapter 12 the illustration of a human body and the gifts as different aspects of that body. If we all had eyes, but no other gifts, then we wouldn't be a body, we'd be an eyeball. If we all had tongues, but we weren't doing anything else, we only honored one gift, well then we'd be this giant, you know, slime monster or whatever. If we're all given different gifts and all meant to fulfill those gifts in different roles, that's the whole point of us gathering together. For people who are more worship-oriented to kind of bring a little bit more passion and motivation into people like me, who emphasize more on truth. People who emphasize on truth can keep the people who are more expressive from going over the line. The people who teach to build each other up. The people who are active evangelists to put those teachings into action and encourage each other to do the same. We're all called to these various gifts. We aren't all given them. That's why we need each other. If we neglect that, the author of Hebrews and plenty of other places in Scripture would note it's doing ourselves a disservice. Uh, you set yourself up for spiritual failure. A uh, synonym for that would be isolation. Yeah, the only thing I'd add to that is uh, we have to be careful about how we define church. Uh, we tend to define churches as a uh, group that meets at a particular place with a uh, church sign out in front of it, uh, Holly. Uh, you know, I remember there was a time in my walk with God where uh, I really, because of the background I came from, had a hard time with uh, going to an actual church building because I'd had so many negative uh, experiences with that. Uh, and, and so there was a time in my walk with God where all I would go to would be a, uh, like a small group Bible study uh, that was going on in my high school or a Thursday night study that would be held at, say, uh, one of the uh, coaches who involved my FCA group uh, would teach. Man, I hungered for fellowship and interaction with believers in Christ. It took me a while to uh, overcome a lot of uh, the, 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 the negatives and the reactivity that I had in my heart. And I began to see the value uh, of a local church and uh, to, to see that as another opportunity to gather together with God's people, to be able to receive God's word. Uh, to be able to corporately kind of bond together and be able to uh, be involved with more ministry and outreach than we would as individuals. 
So if your friend is in a place where maybe they're uh, coming off that sort of negative uh, experience with a church building uh, and uh, groups that meet in buildings per se, uh, you know, they say, I run into people go, well, you know, I'm just not into organized religion. I say, well, come on down to our church. We're hardly organized at all. Uh, It's kind of a joke. But the the, the bottom line is sometimes you got to let people work through those sort of things and just encourage them to maintain fellowship. I think what you said, Sean, was right on uh, about isolation. He who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rails against all wise judgment, Proverbs 18 and verse 1 says. So, and I, I think it's really crucial that we have that connection. Sometimes people say, well, can't I just worship God by myself um, out on Mount Lemon or something like that. Well, yeah, you certainly can, and I think there is that place for that one-on-one uh, relationship with God. But if that's all you do, um, it reminds me of the old uh, saw that my dad, the attorney, used to say, he represents himself in court as a fool for an attorney. Uh, I think the one who thinks they can minister to themselves to the exclusion of the rest of the body of Christ has a moron for a minister. So uh, take that for what it's worth. All right. A question from Mac, who apparently is reading his verse for the day, because we have a few other people in the chat affirming that's where he got it. But he wants to know more information about Luke six thirty-eight. Now, of course, we don't want to take a verse in isolation. It's a part of not the Sermon on the Mount, but the Sermon on the Plain. Right. In Matthew chapter 5 through 7, we see the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus gave a very similar message to what we read in Luke chapter 6, but very much condensed. And of course, you, Dad, can affirm this just as well as I can. You're allowed to preach the same sermon twice. And if you have to condense for time, all the better, because that means people will probably remember it. But the point being made is this. That's essentially dead in the middle of when he's about to give a parable, uh, one I'm sure you're familiar with. It's what Matthew chapter 7 begins with. And, of course, another point that he makes prior, which is literally a repetition of the first verse of Matthew chapter 7. So let's read verse 38, and then let's see what came before and after it, and see if that doesn't clarify. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, people will take that verse in isolation and say, oh, so if I'm generous, people will be generous to me. And so this universal rule of if you do good, then good will come back on you. And they'll read all sorts of things like karma, which isn't what karma means, into this and say, oh, Jesus is just teaching uh, Buddhism or whatever. Well, that's not the case. What came before it? Verse 37, judge not and you shall not be judged. Condemn not and you shall not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Then the verse, give and it will be given to you. So it's building on a series of four statements. If you do this, then it won't, or uh, if you do this, it won't, will be done to you. If you don't do this, it won't be done to you. What were the two things that won't be done? Condemnation and judgment. What are the two things that will be done back to you if you do them? Forgiveness and generosity. What is the point? Well, just like Jesus said in his Lord's Prayer sermon that he gave in Matthew chapter 6, he's building on this point that I should forgive like I've been forgiven, that if you don't forgive men your trespasses, God won't forgive you your trespasses. I believe he's making the same point. If I choose to judge people, then God's going to judge me. If I choose to condemn people, God's going to condemn me. If I choose to forgive people, 
God's going to forgive me. If I choose to be generous to people, God will be generous to me. But the point being made is this. If I leave out verse 37, verse 38 is going to miss a bit of its setting. If we ask the question, though, so is this a general rule or is it just an application to God? I'd say I can speak from experience. I've been very generous and it accomplished nothing in an immediate sense but it did give me the chance to act like Jesus. And if that's enough of a reward, then I can find other passages that affirm that. The passages that come after it are, of course, a parable regarding the blind, leading the blind, removing the speck in your brother's eye, but not realizing you're a plank in your own eye, seeking that restoration. I think it's building on the same point. Uh, Obviously, it's been some time. We're finishing up the Gospel of Luke, but, Dad, we are going through Luke on Sunday mornings at our local fellowship, when you went over this, is there uh, anything more to clarify or add? Uh, I think I think you covered it really well. Uh, you know, the the fact of the matter is, uh, in uh, many sets of circumstances, uh, what we do reflects the condition of the heart, and I think that's what Jesus is acknowledging there. All right, so let us know if that helps you out, Mac. Uh, verse 37 clarifies it's a part of a longer sentence. Don't get caught in that trap of thinking because the verse ends the point did. Uh, okay, um, question about a certain pastor whose name doesn't need to be mentioned, but essentially what's uh, been dubbed on the internet as the evangelifish phenomena or the feel-good sermons. Uh, God wants you— Evangelifish? That's yeah, the, the soft and squishy, you know, that whole kind of aspect. If we were to put this in proper setting, if people were to object to that kind of ministry and say, let's be positive, let's be encouraging, let's be a radio station who follows that trend. No, it's it's uh, centering around that point. We've got about four minutes before the music turns up, but what is wrong with only presenting the dessert spiritually and what would be a good response or balance to those who would go out of their way to condemn it? Well, you know, I think uh, that uh, you've got to keep a couple of different uh, principles in mind. As far as you know, our uh, desire in Calvary Chapel circles and at Calvary Christian Fellowship, we believe that uh, teaching the whole counsel of God uh, from Genesis to Revelation is really important uh, for people. The Apostle Paul uh, felt the same way. Uh, you know, in fact, uh, in uh, the, uh, the book of Acts, chapter 20, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, was talking about uh, uh, the, the ministry that he had had uh, with the elders in Ephesus. In uh, verse 25, it says, Indeed, I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see me no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. You know, and so we want to share with people the whole counsel of God, everything that God has to say to us from Genesis to Revelation. And when you teach through the Bible, chapter by chapter, book by book, verse by verse, people get that whole counsel. And, and it's such a valuable thing. One of the things we've seen in our study of the book of Revelation over and over again is a lot of people are confused when they try to read the 66th book of the Bible because they haven't read the previous 65. It's like reading reading the last chapter of a mystery novel. You're just not really going to understand everything that's going on unless you go through the entire counsel of God. And so we want to do that. And uh, the wonderful thing about that is is that you get a balance in God's Word. Uh, When God's Word is convicting, we uh, teach convicting messages. When God's Word is comforting, we teach comforting messages. 
when God's word emphasizes, for instance, the sovereignty of God, we emphasize the sovereignty of God. When it emphasizes human free will, we emphasize free will. I love that because I don't want to stand before God someday and try to explain to him why I filtered out certain parts of his word and didn't emphasize other parts of his word, uh, you know, because I thought I knew better than, than, than he did. And so that's why we do what we do. And as far as pastors that emphasize certain doctrines, the exclusion of others, you know, you can eat the meat and spit out the bones in those kind of ministries. Sometimes uh, they minister to less mature believers in Christ. And, you know, God will honor uh, his word going forth as long as they're not teaching anything that that departs from the essentials of the Christian faith. You know, some of them are not my cup of tea, but, uh, you know, just find the uh, the pastors and the ministries that minister to you and uh, and go with that. It's better to emphasize those things we can't agree with rather than go headhunting for those things we can't. Yeah, I, there were times in my life where I was more edified by people who had that sort of cautious and comforting position and approach towards ministry because I was immature in the faith. I needed that sort of help yeah. in my walk. But now that I'm more, you know, in an intellectual mindset, I'm more edified by people that really get down to the brass tacks of Scripture. And it's also equipped me to be able to spot whether you're in the intellectual camp or in the emotionalism camp, which one is going too far because you can make the error in the opposite direction as well. If uh, you don't like that pastor, the good news is we have another one. If it's a false teaching, then that should be done and start with Scripture and end with it as well. And yeah. uh, speaking of ending with Scripture, we got one more question we'll answer before the music turns on. This well, is on our... Well, I just wanted to add one more thing to that. You know, Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 talked about people who were preaching from good motives and bad motives. He says, hey, the gospel's preached, I'll rejoice. All right. And then uh, last question. This is on our website. Where is paradise located? When Jesus said to the thief on the cross, you'll be with me this day in paradise. With me is the operative term. Revelation 22 makes the same point, that Jesus' reward is with him. That is it. It's with Jesus. That's heaven. That's what will make it so wonderful that we'll be with our Lord. Thank you all for joining us. We'll look forward to talking to you all again next time. Till then, God bless you. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.